Welcome to Thrive, Mental Health and the Art of Living Free. I'm your host, Melissa Clark, a professional counselor in the Dallas area with a passion for helping you overcome challenges, process painful emotions, and understand your God-given identity. Thank you so much for being here. I believe listening to this podcast will leave you feeling excited, educated, and empowered. Today, we are sitting down and talking with Bob and Polly Hamp. I have had both of these individuals on my show. So if you want to scroll all the way back to 2020, and you will see that Bob was on the show talking about the effects of shame on the brain. Side note, that is my most downloaded episode. So if you haven't heard it, it's really good. And his wife, Polly, and she was on episode four, I believe. So at the very beginning, and she shares her story about being emotionally abused. And today we are continuing that conversation talking about abuse. So I have to warn you, this episode is, is hard to hear. We want to focus on building relationships and the beauty of marriage. And I believe in all of that. I love marriage. I myself have been married for 20 years. I love marriage so much, but unfortunately statistics show us that so many of us are in abusive relationships. And unfortunately in the church, we are still slow to be aware of that, to acknowledge that. And then more importantly, to do something about it. And so I hope this episode challenges you I hope it causes you to have good conversations with those around you to maybe put some words to things that you are experiencing yourself in your relationship and to know that help is available. They have a wonderful resource called tdacad.com. I'm going to link that in the show notes. They are counselors. They are educators, communicators. And they do all the things. And so again, I hope this episode enlightens you. And even though it's going to be challenging and hard to hear, without further ado, here's my conversation with Bob and Polly Hamp. I want to welcome to the show, Bob and Polly Hamp. Welcome guys. I'm so excited about our conversation today. Hey, thanks, Melissa. Thank you. We're excited. You know, just to give a little insider view, you you all have both been on the show before, mm-hmm. and those are my most listened to episodes. Oh, wow. Right? wow. Yeah. Bob, you did one, Shame on the Brain, and uh, Polly, you did one, Abuse in Relationships, Recovering from Abuse. And mm-hmm. I look to you guys as thought leaders, as caring, compassionate people who have spoken into my life personally, and who I know have spoken into thousands of people's lives, and your influence, I feel like hasn't even reached where it's going to go, which is so exciting because we need your voice. I was actually explaining to Polly today, some of our history with you working on way back, you working on Yeah, my own counselor. (laughs) I'm very open about that. Yep. I'm very open about my mental health journey and struggling with depression and anxiety. And I think the more open we can be, the more freedom becomes accessible to people. Well, and I was telling her about the curriculum you were working on. Yeah. Talked about and some of the some of you uh, untangling the professional elements of the practice, you know, the actual part of the practice that was going on. So yeah. yeah. Yes. It's been a journey and a long one, which I'm I'm grateful for. So today I wanted to dive into this idea of abuse. And it's such a big, broad topic. Think yeah. about maybe a pie, the trivial pursuit pie, little slivers <laughs> of the pie. Yes. Yeah. And so we're, we're not going to be able to hit on all of those slices, but I would like to be able to hit on a few of them and maybe myth uh, bust some myths 
and shed some light and just have some conversation about abuse. And so some of this, if you're listening, is going to be, you know, maybe an overview or a repeat. But, you know, what Bob and Polly have to say is so deep and so rich and so nuanced. I think it's going to really give you a fresh new perspective. Bob, I know you like to start off with definitions. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> it is kind of my thing. Yeah. You're a word guy. I love starting off with the definition. How would you define what abuse is versus abuser? And, and Polly, feel free. I want you to jump in as well. Absolutely. Let me first of all say, because like you said, this is a very big topic. And I do want to say that if people want to dive into it more in depth, we have hours of material on this on the Think Differently Academy site. I'm going to link all of that. Don't you worry. Yeah, we're going to have all that in the show notes. I I just know sometimes people get a little bit of a teaser and they're like, we want more. And so I'm going to start by saying this will be like, like Melissa said, it's going to be a couple pieces of the pie. One of the things that I'm going to say, I say this more and more these days, I hadn't until recently started telling the part of the story why I began teaching about abuse is that in my first marriage, it took six counselors to convince me that I was being abused. Hmm. And so it was eight to nine years of counseling and several of those years, uh, several different counselors trying to convince me, a licensed counselor, someone who considers myself pretty wise and eyes wide open, trying to convince me that I was being abused. And it literally, for the first couple months of that, those conversations, I would just kind of pity those counselors and tell them that they just didn't really understand. Mm. And I now look back and, and realize I was the one who didn't understand because abuse is not what it appears to be on the surface. In other words, Mm -hmm. what people think abuse is, is not really the issue. There's a lot of kind of stereotypes and there's a lot of outworkings of what abuse is, but now to your idea of definitions, when you peel all the behavior off the surface of it, at the core, abuse is the misassignment of responsibility. And I often tell people that doesn't sound all that wicked at first until you start to realize, think think through the steps of this. A little child who's being sexually abused by a grown-up is being made responsible for that grown-up's impulses. Not only are they being made responsible for it, often the adult who's sexually abusing that child will say, I'm doing this because you're good or because you're mm-hmm. bad or mm-hmm. because you're pretty or because you're ugly. Or you're special. Or you're yeah. special yeah. or you know, whatever it might be. And so now the child's being made responsible for the abuser's choice. Mm-hmm. And then what happens is the abuser says, and if you tell anybody, I'll hurt you or I'll hurt somebody you love, or I'll do something that's that's terrifying to the child. So third, what happens is the child's now being made responsible to protect the very person who's harming them. At every level, you can kind of see because that's a real concrete example, but at every level, every type of abuse, psychological, emotional, verbal, physical, physical, narcissistic, sexual, every form of abuse has at its core the misassignment of responsibility. And the abuser is making the abuse victim responsible for things that the abuser themselves is designed to be responsible for. Mm-hmm. What does that sound like in the counseling setting in terms of so often with marriage counseling, it's a, that 50, 50, you do this part, you do that part. But what does that look like in terms of if, if the abuser is a hundred percent responsible for his or her actions, then I'm curious, it is so confusing to people. You are a highly educated person trained. And even still, it was years and years and years of realizing, wait a second, this is actually an abusive relationship. Yeah, in fact, Patrick Carnes, who wrote the book, The Betrayal Bond, would say the same thing. He he had a history of being in abusive relationships, mm. and it took a while for him to recognize what was happening as well and wrote that incredible book, The Betrayal Bond. So what I would say is that maybe when you talk about myth busting, one of the most important myths for us to bust is this idea of the 50-50 part uh, mm-hmm. idea of responsibility in marriage. 
in your average marriage counseling, there's a circularity. And by average, what I mean is the non-abusive type, where you're working on conflict resolution, where you're working on a history of, of bad patterns or bad communication. You're really looking at the circularity of each person contributes to the issue. But when it comes to abuse, and especially kind of the, the more toxic forms of abuse, like narcissistic abuse and the kind of high-level psycho psychological abuse, in, in those situations where you've got a predatory abuser, yes. the abuser is 100% responsible for the dynamic. Mm -hmm. Now, here's the tricky part. Does that mean that the abuse victim is without any responsibility at all? Mm -hmm. They are responsible to, at some point, open their eyes and leave. Yes or to consider what it means to set the kind of boundaries that it takes, ultimately bring the abuse to an end. But what they're not responsible for is the ongoing conflict, the ongoing dynamic that we'll describe probably in the, in the moments ahead, because the abuser drives that 100% from their disorder. And the healthiest person on the planet, the best communicator on the planet, cannot solve the problem of abuse by themselves in a relationship. It takes both people, but the person who's doing the abuse is driving something that the other person has no chance of except to get out of. Mm -hmm. Polly, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So <laughs> <laughs> you did such a great job explaining that, but it's, it's so interesting because we, we become like the, when you're the victim, quote unquote victim, you end up in a very codependent relationship and you end up always trying to make the abuser look good. Mm -hmm. is one of the dynamics that I see um, yeah. on a consistent basis. And, um, and it's like, you know, oh, if I, if I lift him or her up, if I make them like look okay. And so what ends up happening cover is we'll for their cover weaknesses. for their weaknesses. Mm -hmm. Maybe I can believe it myself because gosh, they have to be a really good person. They can't be that mean and harming me all the time. Right. Mm -hmm. And, and if we just do a little bit of counseling, if he or she just sees a new way, and if I can just fix this one thing or two things, and if I can change, then this person will be okay. And I won't get harmed anymore. And I think the, in a, in a counseling setting, what ends up happening is that the quote unquote victim, I just don't like the victim word, but I'm just going to use it because <laughs> yeah. it's the clearest cut. Victim will protect the abuser yeah. and just say, you know, gosh, well, I'm, you know, I do this. And if I just did this, then he wouldn't yell. If I just did this, then I could cook better. If give, I could yeah, give more sex, give more sex, lose more weight. Yeah. Keep the kids clean, you know, be quiet, whatever, then they will be okay. And I think the danger in that is we start taking the picture of what the victim is saying as reality mm -hmm. and start trying to change the victim instead of really seeing the dynamic of both the abuser and the victim and going, hold on. So if you're under control and thinking you can change all this and the abuser is letting you do all these things, then what's really happening? And I think the lens in for counselors uh, pastors, volunteers, whoever's helping other people in different areas, we have to have our eyes open and we cannot be blind to the cycle anymore. And yeah. it's easier. It's, it's actually nicer to be blind because we don't want to believe there's that many abusers out there, that many manipulators, that many harmful people, especially within the church that we're worshiping with and life groups with married yes. to. Yeah. But, and part of how it presents in counseling, you know, you ask what it looks like in the office. Part of how it presents is the abuser is usually somebody who's an upstanding citizen, mm -hmm. well-respected, well-loved, valued a good by person. people. 
right? Yeah. And so people have a hard time believing that. Mm -hmm. So often, just like Polly was saying a second ago, what presents in the office can be, you know, the, the counselor, the pastor, the helper can easily be fooled into believing what the uh, abuser is selling everybody else. And that is, so here's, here's basically the presentation, right? The victim thinks that they're the problem and the other person, or that they're a special helper and the other person, if they could just help them enough, like Polly said, more sex, more, you know, lose more weight, cook more meals, make the kids look right. If I could just do enough, they would finally become the wonderful person I know they are. The abuser now, there, I think there's two kinds. I think there's predatory abusers who simply know what they're doing and try to disguise it. And then I think there are immature, talk perhaps about that, dependent abusers mm-hmm. who are simply trying to get the way, get what they want and don't recognize the immaturity of their style of doing it. But either way, they believe, the abuser believes that their partner's the problem, that they have a small problem or no problem. And if their partner would just change that they're a little problem with anger or their little problem with porn mm-hmm. or their little problem with control wouldn't be an issue if their partner would just finally behave right. If the counselor slash pastor slash helper doesn't recognize that that's kind of the deceit the presentation, mm-hmm. then what's going to happen is they'll buy that and start putting the weight on the partner to say, well, if you would change, they wouldn't be so angry. If you would serve him more, submit to him more. And hence, part of why this takes place a lot uh, commonly in a church setting is because there's that dynamic where a lot of church teaching talks about the idea of the wife is to submit to the husband, Mm -hmm. husband rules over the wife. And so the picture is, if she's not doing that, she's the problem. That feeds this entire dynamic that says, if the man's not getting what he wants, he has the right to misbehave. Yes. And therefore the problem is the quote unquote, that woman thou gavest me. <laughs> and, and by the way, let me quickly say, you, you know, I started out this session saying that I was the one being abused in my relationship. Mm-hmm. And, and, and so it's not simply the male abusing the female. That's right. Uh, but that is part of the setup in the dynamic of the church culture is mm-hmm. this, you know, the teaching that the woman is to be subject to the husband. And so that's that's a very dangerous teaching and because the outworkings of that really fundamentally support this dynamic of abuse where you transfer responsibility over to the partner mm-hmm. and the person who's ultimately responsible to control their impulse, their anger, their sexual drive, you know, their control issues. The person who's responsible to control that isn't held responsible at all because everyone sees the other person as the problem. That's right. I'm hearing a lot of if-then statements. Mm-hmm. If this happens and that will happen, and it's almost like I'm I'm willing this reality to come into existence. Yeah. If only I could, you know, get this magic like Rubik's cube, then it will be solved. But yeah. magically, you get it all solved one day, and then you walk over the next day, and then it's all jumbled up again. And you have to try all over. Yeah, <laughs> yes. for the victim, it's very much like that carrot dangling out of yeah. the mm-hmm. It just keeps you going and keeps you going, keeps you going, believing that if I could get that carrot the problem will be solved and my partner will become that wonderful person that I'm sure that they are. Mm-hmm. So you guys discussed briefly some really good concepts that I would like to unpack. One of those would be mm-hmm. the idea of responsibility and the other one being codependency. And they very much go together, but sure. uh, I think need to be discussed a little bit differently. So how do you feel like this element or dynamic of responsibility impacts abusive relationships? How maybe does it keep the myths going? And then where does codependency fit in there with it? So let's let's talk for a minute about this move from dependence to independence, which is core to all of our emotional health, all of our mental health, all of our spiritual health, Mm -hmm. moving from childish to adult, moving from other people manage my life to I manage my life, or even more importantly, 
other people manage my inside life to I manage my inside life. Can I hop in there really quick, Bob? As you're as you're talking about this, do you mind talking about it from the the sexual lens in terms of only my wife would do this, then I wouldn't have to look at porn. Oh, and this okay. very childish view of sexuality and how that's very pervasive in the church. So as you're sharing this idea of moving from child to adult, do you mind doing it with a lens of sexual connection? Yeah, for sure. Yeah. yeah. And there's actually two issues that really matter a great deal when you bring that lens to it. So mm-hmm. let me finish the thought of dependence to independence, because the idea of that is that each one of us to become mentally, emotionally, spiritually healthy has to also become self-managing. Mm-hmm. Yes. And what that means is that no matter who or what happens around me, I still have the capacity to self-manage every one of my impulses, every one of my thoughts, every one of my emotions to the degree that I place responsibility on others for managing my impulses, emotions, drives, thought processes, then I'm still remaining immature. And that's why that movement from dependence to independence is so crucial to maturity, mental, mental and emotional and spiritual health. Yeah. Because without that, I'm still waiting on others to make it okay for me to finally become myself. You never have to be responsible for yourself. You're always looking for others to be responsible for you. Mm-hmm. And one of the common teachings in the church, because of this whole issue of submit to your husband, uh, husbands have the right to, you know, to demand what they want from their wives in lots of ways, including sexually. There's this idea that a man has these needs and a woman has something that she should give him to make everything okay. Well, that idea in itself flies in the face of emotional independence, mm-hmm. right? Also. Well, for instance, what about a single man? Is he not responsible to manage his sexual drives, thoughts, needs, and everything? Just because he doesn't have a wife, then who's responsible before he's married? And after he's married, is his wife really responsible for his thought processes, his emotions, his impulses, his drives, and how he carries those out? Um, it's It's an incredibly toxic teaching that has pervaded religious culture for years that says men can't help themselves. Now think about the implication of that teaching. Men can't help themselves because we're quote unquote visually stimulated. And as a result, all we can think about is sex. And so it's up to women to dress a certain way to manage our issues. It's up to women to uh, behave a certain way to to manage men's issues. Think about this for a second. The same kind of churches that teach that teach that men should be leaders and women should not. Right. Because quote unquote, men are not as emotional. Mm-hmm. Well, but at the, in the same breath, they're going to teach that men can't control themselves and women are responsible to manage a man's emotional, sexual, mental state. Well, you can't have both. Who makes that the leader? Right. That's <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's very right. confusing. The more yeah. powerful one is the female because the man can't help himself. Mm-hmm. I think we do both men and women an incredible yeah. disservice to teach that men can't help themselves. Mm-hmm. We're essentially saying that men aren't created in the image of God. And I would submit to you that we have taught men out of responsibility by telling them that they can't help themselves sexually. The concept that men can't help but lust does damage both to a man's emotional development. And think about, I mean, you guys are as women, Mm -hmm. what must you think of men if you've actually believed that men can't help but lust? Mm -hmm. it's It's a ludicrous teaching and it's an incredibly disruptive teaching to to relationships, to connection, to intimacy, and to male-female relationships that aren't sexual. 
You know, the idea that men are always lusting after women is a myth. You won't find it in scripture and you'll find a number of men who will tell you personally, myself included, listen, I can notice someone who's pretty, but that's not the same thing as lusting. Mm -hmm. Lusting is when I allow my heart and my mind to consider things with someone else that's inappropriate in our relationship. Well, that's, I would never say that all men struggle with that because Mm -hmm. I know dozens who don't. Mm -hmm. Let me hop in there really quick with that. I think even more dangerous is teachings that says, if a man isn't lusting, then he's just kidding himself. And he really is lusting. And all men actually do look at pornography. And if they aren't, well, then you just don't know about it. It's like this incredible distrust. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. And this is this is modern teaching a book. I just read as of 2021 from a major, major publishing house book. It's teaching men out of maturity. Yeah. And And responsibility. And here's the other issue. Remember I said there were two issues. So one of them is the teaching that men are not responsible for themselves and women are responsible for men. You can see how incredibly erosive that is to human connectivity, to maturity, to all those different things. But here's the other significant mistake that people make when you look through a sexual lens. The issue of pornography use and sexuality in a marriage are not equivalent. Mm-hmm. In other words, one is not a substitute for the other. Mm-hmm. Yes. It, it is not a question of a man is not getting enough sex, so he's going to look at porn. Mm-hmm. Pornography use is always about unmet emotional needs, mm-hmm. not about unmet sexual drives. I think we just need to pause with that just for a second and let that sink in. Mm-hmm. There's repeat. so much freedom that comes with that statement. Do you mind saying it again? <laughs> the belief is that it's all about the need for more orgasms, when in reality, Pornography is much more about unmet emotional needs like loneliness, fatherlessness, unresolved anger, uh, hopelessness. You know, it's it's these unmet emotional needs and pornography functions just like alcohol, cocaine, uh, cigarettes, and, and, and that it becomes a numbing impact on the emotional state. Mm-hmm. It's not a substitute for connection. It's a counterfeit for healthy development. Let me say that again. Pornography is not a substitute for connection. Mm -hmm. It's a counterfeit for healthy emotional development. And to say that there's an equivalency between how much sex a man is getting and whether or not he'll use porn also keeps men and women from getting the help they need with their pornography issue Mm -hmm. because they believe the solution to it is more sex instead of healing their emotions. Mm -hmm. Men and women turn to pornography because they have an emotional need that's either not ever been met or isn't being met. And if they think that the solution to that is lots more sex and or more orgasms, what they're going to do is they're going to perhaps have more orgasms, but still remain emotionally broken. Yes. And and so that whole belief that sex and pornography are equivalencies is absolutely a false belief. Mm -hmm. And you see it again, you see that, I mean, I think you just mentioned in in whatever you referenced a minute ago, we have to tell people that everywhere we go, if if what people believe is, if men don't get enough sex, they'll turn to porn. That's a complete misunderstanding of the human soul. It's also a complete misunderstanding of what sex is designed for, Mm -hmm. right? Sex is designed for two to become one. And there's not a single thing that a screen an audio, a, a photograph, a, a, know, book. a book can do to provide emotional connection, mm-hmm. to provide two becomes one. And what often happens is there's really a void of, of oneness in relationships. And so people don't understand that sex is the, the culmination of two become one, mm-hmm. not the need for physical release. And 
that's where the false equivalency comes in is people think it's about a physical release. So they equate it with pornography and masturbation, as opposed to understanding that sex is about oneness and you cannot counterfeit or substitute images, auditory sounds, print, can't substitute that for oneness because they're not equivalencies. Well, and it's pretty interesting if you do some study on the effects of pornography is men who they, you know, they start like the gateway drug. They start with like, I don't know how to say basic pornography, but like, what is the stuff they show on, you know, Cinemax or not Cinemax, but one of the cable stations. Anyway, doesn't matter. Soft porn. Soft porn. Thank you. Yeah. Start there. You know, there's the masturbation issue, things like that. But then they start getting into harder porn. And eventually many men are having erectile dysfunction Yep, because they're no longer connected to the emotional aspect because they've shut off. They were looking at for it for orgasm and release, but now their bodies are not functioning the way that they're hoping for to be connected to something that's a counterfeit connection. And it's pretty interesting that the very thing that they're looking for is what shuts them down. Yeah. Yeah. Isn't that, isn't that typical of kind of the way the soul's wired? Yeah. You feed, you feed yourself on a counterfeit. You're no longer able to have the real thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what happens? You don't even is, know what the real thing is. It feels like, like going to McDonald's versus growing a garden, you know, right. Yeah. yeah. You go through a drive-through versus like taking the time to actually grow something. And if you don't even know that that's not real food, then we keep settling and settling. And, and again, I, I don't think I, I believe the best in people. I don't think I could do what I do if I, if I didn't see the good in, yeah. in yeah. people. Uh, I don't think most leaders intend to, I don't think they're the predatorial type. I think they're more of the immature type, yeah. but it does keep this idea going. If one person would do this, then the other person will be good. And it Which just, is. it just feeds this codependent relationship and this lack of emotional, emotional, mental, spiritual growth. And the thing is, is, you know, when you look at the dynamic of it, it's very hard to work with couples who they want to see a difference. And the, the one, let's say, that's playing the codependent role, you know, they um, they want to see a difference, but they're so afraid to make the changes um, because of the cost. Yeah. The cost of, of shifting um, the codependency and becoming responsible for yourself and no longer carrying the responsibility of somebody else to shift that the cost is so high because if your partner is is not wanting they're very comfortable with you making sure that they're always okay and they're totally fine with you not making a change except to make them better and when you start saying i'm no longer going to do these things to make sure you're okay i'm no longer going to be codependent in this relationship the cost could be the relationship could be the relationship and if there's not a partnership and where it can happen in a healthy way where both people are like hey i'm willing to recognize my role and the other person's like i'm willing to recognize my role and no longer will we be enmeshed we're going to become our own independent people and then we get to come together because we're dependent and that two becomes choose to. one choose yeah. to yeah. because because we love each other and we want something more but when you have the abusive dynamic and the codependent starts setting that boundary of saying i'm not going to do that anymore you can lose your relationship and to do that is scary well here's the tricky part scary. right So what happens is if the issue is misassignment of responsibility and both people being responsible is the solution for the abuser, 
to change the dynamic. What they have to do is take full ownership of what they've been doing, Mm -hmm. what they've been choosing and the impact that they've had on their partner. But for the victim to change the dynamic, they actually have to let the other person be responsible for themselves. And so again, there are certain religious teachings that would say, wait a minute, you are responsible for them. And so people who adhere to those teachings look at that person who's saying, no, I'm going to expect the abusive person to take ownership, be responsible, make some changes, and I'm no longer going to cover for him or her. The religious teaching would say, now you're being unforgiving. Yeah. Uh, now you're being harsh. Because fundamentally, you're no longer taking responsibility. There are too many people in the helper helping culture where people say, you know, no, you still have to do something to make them okay. And yet both developmental health addiction and uh, addiction and abuse teaching would say, no, you have to make them be responsible for themselves, which means potentially Mm -hmm. you setting a boundary that progressively could lead to leaving them. So, which is actually doing something to make them okay. (laughs) Like as a codependent person, when you say, I am going to set these boundaries, it is the kindest thing you can do to that abuser. Mm -hmm. I'm going to, I love you so much. I'm going to let you own yourself fully so you can become the truest person you're created to be. And I'm no longer going to play this role to harm that for you. You always say, I love you so much. I'm not going to let you be somebody other than who you are. Exactly. Yeah. Well, you think about too, from the trigger trauma response with the fight, flight, freeze, or fawn Mm -hmm. in that fawn response. And I think sometimes we just get so used to, if only I can make you happy with me, then I'm going to experience some relief. And so to not to set that boundary is incredibly uncomfortable. It leads to something good. But it's so painful as we're doing it because we're used to that kind of almost control and our part of it and feeling empowered, even though it's a false sense of power and a false sense of control. And it's like Polly said, it's terrifying because it's either going to change things or it's going to end things. And I think that's the fear of the codependent mindset is I've always carried them. What happens if I stop carrying them? Well, I might lose them. And who am I if I'm no longer carrying them? Because yeah. I've consumed my life with making sure that they're okay. And I've set my life aside. Now I have to figure out who I am and be responsible for that. You know, it's a process. And I think that's, you know, one of the things is, is get to a place where it's like, I'm no longer willing to sit in the horrible and the second guessing myself all the time. And just the anxiety that all of that creates. I'm no longer willing to do that. I'm already in pain. So the process is painful to walk through, but one process, one thing has you stuck in the pain. Yeah. The hard one has you moving through it to get to another side to whatever that will look like when, when you get through it. And that's so slow. And when you're already tired and you go to go get help or you go to the church and you get more bad information, it gets very confusing. So how, how can the abuser begin to recognize like, wait a second, maybe I'm a part of the problem. Maybe it's not just my whoever, maybe it, maybe it is me. Like, what are, like, what are some questions or a line of thinking to begin to disrupt that idea that my responsibility lies in somebody else's behaviors and actions? That's a tough one because, and and you know, this is a counselor, Melissa, a lot of times when a marriage presents in counseling, there's a, there's an unhappy partner and, and an unaware partner. 
Yeah. Right. There's the partner who's been kind of languishing and saying things aren't what I want it to be. And the other partner's like, I'm fine. And that's pretty common in all marriage counseling that one partner's unhappy and one partner's either unaware or they're satisfied enough that they're not motivated to change. That's a that's a pretty common dynamic in almost every marriage that I've ever worked with for 30 years. Multiply that over this idea that an abuser fundamentally has not matured emotionally. Um, and in particular, in the case with predatory abusers, I, I think the question you're asking doesn't even matter with predatory abusers because yeah. they're deeply invested in staying yes. in that quote unquote blind position. Honestly, the best answer I would give to your question is I've sent a lot of people to go watch my video on the dynamics of abuse, where I talk about the exchange of responsibility and I talk about what that looks like over time. And you have a great little graph with it too, which really is helpful to visualize that. Yeah. yeah. And essentially it's like two circles with a plus, you know, all the pluses, the resources that one person has and all the pain and, and struggles that the other person has. And inside those circles, the abuser is trying to get the victim to carry the struggles and to give them their resource. And then you start kind of showing that, what, what does that look like? Well, the abuser is trying to carry the, is trying to get the other person to carry their minuses by saying, I'm angry, I'm going to take it out on you, or uh, I'm, I'm hurt, I'm going to make sure that you hurt too. And, and so the abuser is trying to give all the pain to the, uh, to the victim. And the victim is trying to give resource by saying, wait, I'll do that for you. I'll call your boss and call and sit mm-hmm. for you. I'll, you know, I'll cover you in some way. And so they're giving resource while their partner's giving pain. And that exchange between the two becomes a real, I'm just going to say it this way, a benefit to the abuser. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They end up not in pain. In fact, that's part of the role that the abuse victim plays is they become the pain bearer in that relationship. Mm-hmm. And so the difficulty in your question is you're asking somebody who's not very motivated to take on something incredibly painful and difficult. Mm-hmm. And the key factor, I think, is do they consider the relationship worthwhile to do the hard work or do they consider themselves more worthwhile and they'll self-protect more than they'll protect the relationship. Yes. And anytime you begin to discern that they're more invested in protecting themselves than they are in protecting the relationship, you have to be careful that you don't harm the victim right. by trying to get the, uh, you, you can jump into the dynamic by trying to get the abuser to see. You know, as you're trying to get them to see, you're also taking responsibility for their deficit. And you're also covering their minuses by giving them your pluses. Mm -hmm. And so at some point, what you have to do is let them come face to face with the pain that they've been giving to other people. Mm -hmm. So it's almost more behavioral dynamics, i.e. set a boundary, enforce Mm -hmm. the consequence, set a boundary, enforce the consequence than it is what questions can you ask? What things can you say? I always send people to watch that video Mm -hmm. because I think it's pretty black and white, helps people that are both left brain and right brain really see. Well, I think that's um, a kind way too, because nobody wants to see themselves as an abuser. Right. Yeah. So when you say pain and your own trauma, then it's like, yeah, I do have pain. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I have had bad stuff happen to me. And it's just a bad solution to a problem. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As, as opposed to, yeah, people really struggle with that word abuse and, and labeling themselves as an abuser. Mm-hmm. But I've had probably in the last four or five years, I've probably had three people watch that video and come back to me and say, oh my goodness, I'm the abuser. Mm-hmm. And so it's helpful, mm-hmm. but keep in mind three, three to four people out of in the last four or five years is not a lot. <laughs> yeah. Most people don't want to see themselves in that role because it's too, it's too hard. And they're benefiting from not seeing. 
So I did a conference in Lubbock a couple, a year and a half ago and talked about this topic for a day and a half. And I started the conference because it was in a church setting with multiple churches represented there. I started them telling this story because as someone who's worked at churches and volunteered you know, churches over 30 years time, a lot of churches at the end of their service, people will come down front and yeah. be available to pray with people. And it's a pretty common thing that happens that somebody will come down and say, hey, will you pray with me that my wife will come back to me? Mm-hmm. She left me three weeks ago and I didn't even know there was a problem. And she's listening to all of her friends who are telling her bad things. And all of her friends have turned her on. Somebody else's fault. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. Good. So you're hearing it. Right. (laughs) And so they've got this sad story that's incredibly common in these altar exchanges Mm -hmm. where they say, please pray with me for my spouse to come back because it is can be either gender. Mm -hmm. Please pray with me for my spouse to come back. They're listening to their friends who are telling them bad things about me. I didn't even know there was a problem and they won't even talk to me anymore. Mm -hmm. By the time someone takes that step, I won't even talk to them anymore. They've probably recognized that talking to them is either unsafe or unproductive or both. And so what I said to this group is I said, if you've ever had someone come down and with that prayer request, you are probably being asked to pray with an abuser that their victim would come back to be Mm. abused. But they do such an incredible job of of playing on sympathy and making people think bad things about the other person. Using Bible verses as they're stating their prayer request making you think bad things about their support system. Yeah. And if you've ever had a moment like that, either in a counseling office at a, at an altar or just in a conversation over lunch with a friend, you've got to be able to start to see through that enough to go, wait a minute. Like it's bad enough that they left you and you didn't even know there was a problem. Mm-hmm. Like how much denial do you have to be in? And inevitably, if you ever get to the point with this, what the other person says is I told you for 10 years, there was a problem. Yeah. You just didn't care enough to listen to me. And so that presentation does two things. Number one, it gains the sympathy of the listener, but it also preemptively paints the other person as a bad person who's got a bad support system, who's doing harm to this God-given institution called marriage. Mm-hmm. They need to be the one to be fixed. Yeah. yeah. Would you join me in prayer about that? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll pray for you, but <laughs> yeah, you know, look very different than what you're expecting. How did those church leaders respond to that? It was pretty quiet because I built the story up without telling them the end of the story and they'll yeah. just delivered the last line and said, if you've ever had that happen, you are 99% likely speaking to an abuser in that moment. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I mean, some big eyes is probably 40 people in the room is, and um, just quiet. And once I started to explain it to him, you could see them go, oh, mm-hmm. because I guarantee you every one of them has had that happen. Mm-hmm. And so the response was shock. One, one of the things that I often these days am in, in trying to get cultures to understand abuse is people have to understand that the abuse doesn't just hurt the victim. Yes. It erodes the fabric of community. Mm. Because it enlists other people in believing the opposite of what's true. Mm-hmm. You know, take that altar moment and multiply it throughout 30 other people in, in that given church. And if 25 of those people buy the picture sold by the abuser, what they're doing is they're supporting a harmful person and they're, uh, they're demonizing someone who's already been deeply wounded in some cases for decades. And so they're actually joining in with the abuser in the very dynamic that they should be trying to resolve. 
And so you can see that in a culture, let's say that that's a small church of 400 people. I guess to some people it's big, some people it's small, but let's say a church of 400 people, you've got 30 people involved in that. They can take up sides and start to be at odds with each other because one believes one person, one believes the other. And now this one case of abuse has 30 key leaders distrusting each other because one abuser is unable to see or unwilling to see his or her part in the abuse. Mm -hmm. It's incredibly corrosive to a culture. Mm -hmm. And you, you can see that not, not in just a given church, but you can see that in a community. And you, sorry. you can see that in friendships when a divorce happens. Yeah. Yeah. And divorce happens and you, you lose see, all the friends. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's the kind of the unspoken side of divorce. You know, we know that family stuff changes, mm -hmm. but so do friendships. And a lot of times people obviously pick the side of the person who is most vocal, most vocal and most likely to gain sympathy. And many times the victim just goes quiet and disappears because the they're world. not going to win. Yeah. That's the world and the dynamic and, you know, the abuser quote unquote wins to their standards, but actually the victim does because they get out. And they maintain their mental health and yeah. their emotional health. After and, you walk through your yeah. We've talked about this idea of codependency, this idea of responsibility and, and very overview. And definitely if, if we've piqued your interest, go to these, the, the TD Academy website, become a member. There's like different levels. There's a free membership where you can get this training on dynamics level, of abuse. Free level, yeah. you can see three hours of teaching. On yeah. This. And it's, it's all so, so good. And this idea of how church is in a part of the abuse process. I, I'd like to switch gears a little bit. I don't want to just have the conversation about what abuse is. I would love to give us some ideas and strategies of what to do because there is so much bad information out there mm -hmm. with scripture attached with it. So I, I have three different kind of freedom from abuse thoughts. One is telling your story, setting boundaries, leaving your marriage. I want to hit the most important one first, what I consider to be the most important, because I think this is still very taboo. It's still, it's not talked about enough. When is it time to leave? And this idea of God hating divorce and using the Bible to keep people trapped in marriage. Yeah. I, I would first of all name Gretchen Baskerville's book, uh -huh. The Life-Saving Divorce, mm -hmm. such a, such an incredibly important resource. If you're listening to this and, and in that kind of situation, please get yourself this book. It might be the most important. And Gretchen would say, and I would as well, it's not an exaggeration to say that some divorces are life-saving. Yes. People die in abusive marriages. Yes. And if you're in that situation, please get Gretchen's book. People die emotionally in mm -hmm. abusive marriages all the time. In fact, that's part of the issue. But let's, so um, let me first of all say that the Bible is written in two languages. Neither one of them are English. And, and we read English that's been translated in some cases out of two or three different translations. In other words, it's come from one language to another and ultimately into English. And one of the dilemmas in that is that we, if we pick, if we cherry pick specific verses, we can easily come to believe that God is completely opposed to divorce and that there's only one legitimate way out of marriage. And that is if the other person's been sexually unfaithful. Adultery. Yeah. And so the, the, the hard part of that is if you only read in English and if you only cherry pick those verses, it's easy to believe that. Mm -hmm. 
But the problem is the Bible wasn't written in English, and there are multiple other constructs and concepts throughout both Old and New Testament that make it difficult to take one verse over an entire, you know, uh, thought process. So, for example, you know, God instituted divorce in the Old Testament, so God himself instituted it. How could he be against it? I've never heard anybody say it that way before, and I, I hear and read a lot. Later, you see in the book of Isaiah that God divorced Israel. How could he be against that? Mm. Now you get to the last book in the Old Testament, Malachi, where you read this phrase in English that says God hates divorce. Mm-hmm. And if you read it in English, what you're going to see is there's several different ways that you, that you see that translated. But one of them is God is upset that people have treated their spouse treacherously because God hates divorce. But again, if you go back to some of the original language, one of the things you're going to find out is it actually more accurately reads God hates people who treat their spouse treacherously Mm -hmm. and leading to divorce. So it's the mistreatment that God hates. Yes. Not the divorce. I feel like that's that somebody is going to get healing just from that. Yeah. Yeah. But God hates, hates his sons and daughters to be hurt. That's what he hates. He hates the behavior that leads to divorce. It never says he hates divorce. Again, if you go back to the original language, the other crucial construct for people to get is that there's actually two words, both Old and New Testament, two words that are translated divorce. One of them means the legal process of divorce. And one of them means to put your spouse out of the relationship without granting them divorce. But in English, both of those original languages are translated divorce. Mm. So imagine this for a second. Imagine if Jesus said, if you put your spouse out without granting them a divorce, if they're to remarry, you force them to commit adultery. Mm. Well, that makes sense, right? If you didn't divorce them and they remarry, they're committing adultery. But if you translate that word, if you divorce them and they remarry, they're committing adultery. Now a whole swath of people Mm -hmm. believe that God's not in favor of divorce unless there's been unfaithfulness. And even if there's been unfaithfulness, you can't remarry without now committing adultery because we've mistranslated a word that doesn't mean divorce in the original language. It means putting them out of relationship without granting them divorce. But if that word is translated divorce, people don't know the difference because they read it in English and they they comprehend it it in English. Interpret it. So there's a number limited by it and that we have to say, and we just have to kind of put up with it for 50 years. And if I leave, then God's going to hate me and the church is going to hate me. I'm going to lose everything. Now think about this for a second. If you have a tendency to be unkind, selfish, controlling, or immature in your marriage, what are you going to teach people about divorce? You have no right to leave me. So I have the right to treat you any way I want to, because you have no right to leave me. Mm-hmm. So there is an element of personality or probably character is more accurate mm-hmm. that would tend towards people going, Hey, look, there's a prohibition against that. You better stay in no matter how badly you're treated. Mm-hmm. And so it's easy for someone with the mindset of control and abuse to simply swallow that pill whole without ever taking it apart to find out what's the linguistics behind it. Mm-hmm. Yes. But if you're compassionate to people and recognize the pain that people are in when they're being abused and how many decades they've tried to make things work and how much suffering they've gone through, how much weight they've carried on their own shoulders to try to make the other person okay, if you're compassionate toward that person, you're going to look at those scriptures and go, God, how could you say this person can't get out of this? Mm -hmm. 
help me understand. Mm -hmm. And you might dig a little bit deeper and go, oh, I've misunderstood. Mm -hmm. Compassion would lead me to examine. Mm -hmm. Lack of compassion would lead me to make a law that says, look, you got to stay bummer for you. Yeah. And I think even as a, as a practitioner, helping people to, to label and define abuse, they can often get to a spot that says, yes, I I'm being abused, but I I'm just too scared to leave. Yeah. And so maybe, maybe a segue, I, I just want to shed light into this idea that divorce isn't necessarily the wrong thing. Sometimes it's absolutely the right thing. Sometimes it's the most right thing. Yes. Again, Gretchen's book, I want to reference. Yeah, she has such great content online and such a great place of shifting paradigms. I've been raised in the church. I like to say that I was born on a Saturday and in church on Sunday. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, saved at four. Uh, and it's it's still hard for me to wrap my mind around that. But But as you discover more about who God is and what marriage is, there's many marriages that that are not marriage. And well, Gretchen's um, a Bible scholar and a researcher. Mm-hmm, yes. You combine those two, she'll she'll talk to you about what does the scripture say? What's the original language? How's it been translated throughout the centuries? But then she'll also do research that says some of the things you've been told is that kids are always damaged by divorce. Mm-hmm. That's not true. Mm-hmm. Sometimes kids are damaged by divorce, but they're more damaged by people staying in abusive relationships yes. throughout the child's lifetime. And so that, that idea can only be dispelled by sound research for people mm-hmm. to say, look, I can see that people are damaged by divorce. Mm-hmm. Kids are damaged by divorce, mm-hmm. but not all of them are. Mm-hmm. So here's, here's a metaphor that I like to use, Melissa, that might be helpful kind of for people out there trying to change the paradigm. Yeah. Imagine this for a second. You walk into the room and somebody that you love is being held at knife point by, by a madman. The same madman has in his other hand, the knife, and he's holding that knife to a photograph of your friend. You've got one chance to grab one knife. Which one are you going to grab? Mm-hmm. The one with the person. Me. Yeah. You're going to save the person, not the mm-hmm. picture. Mm-hmm. Right? So listen to this carefully. Marriage is a picture of Christ in the church, but then there's humans who are the conduit and the re- residing place of the spirit of God on the earth. Mm-hmm. And when you look, people are trying to save the picture. Well, they let the person be sliced to ribbons. No one would ever do that if you walk into a room and it's a literal person in a literal photograph. But we do it all the time when we save, quote unquote, the picture of Christ in the church. Well, we let the Christian be shredded. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It, it's not just not logical. It's not the heart of God. It's not the mind of God. And it, it takes a certain amount of mental gymnastics and, and verbal gymnastics to validate the idea that God would rather have people be beaten or punished or abused than to have them be able to get out of something like a marriage. It's yeah, just yeah. a picture. The reality is the person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, in the church, we are told, you know, that we need to forgive mm-hmm. and forget, um, mm-hmm. which is impossible. Um, so speak into the idea, Polly, maybe about this idea of forgiveness and how forgiveness is not necessarily the, with the idea of reconciliation is not necessarily is not the way to go when it comes to abuse. You know, forgiveness, if if you're in the pattern of forgiveness of, you know, what you've been taught, like you just I think were taught, I wasn't even in the church and I was taught about forgiveness, um, you know, in a very toxic way. It's like you just forgive and forget and move on and everything will be fine. But that person keeps harming you over and over again, but you just forgive and forget forgive and forget. And then the church teaches it in a way that's like, you know, it's your godly duty 
to forgive. And if you don't forgive like Christ forgave, then you're a sinner and you're bad. And so it's a very toxic, painful teaching is like, you know, if your spouse is abusing you, you just need to forgive and pray more for them that that change will happen. Yes. Um, So forgiveness is, I think, incredibly important in the healing journey. What, What forgiveness does for you is it helps heal your heart and has a connection to God. Um, and it releases the person that has done harm to you. Um, but forgiveness does not mean reconciliation. Forgiveness does not mean relationship. Forgiveness is a powerful spiritual tool that, um, releases I'm going to just say it again, releases that person from you, gives them back to God and to themselves. And the process of it can be painful. Um, especially when it's taught the way that it is, um, you know, you just need to forgive your abuser. And I've seen a few, you know, tweets, I will never forgive the person that Mm -hmm. abused me. You know, one of the things we always say is forgiveness isn't about them. Forgiveness is not for the person. It, it kind of is in the big grand scheme of things, but But our motivation for doing it it is not for for ourselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's for us. And it, you can't force yourself to forgive and you can't force yourself to forget. You know, the more you try to do that, the more it, it inflames it, mm-hmm. right. It just makes it bigger. And so, you know, one of the things, if you want to talk just practical steps is if there's somebody that you're having a hard time forgiving, you know, Bob has a great teaching on forgiveness on, I'm sure it's on the Academy, it's right. True. But it's a process of, you know, Picturing the person that if, if you're not able to do it, where I forgive you in front of them, you know, picturing that person, like my, my biological father, who's one of my abusers, you know, I picture him in front of me. And then I would ask Jesus where he is in the room. And Jesus was sitting next to me and I'm, you know, I will no longer carry the pain of the abuse mm. that my father did to me. And I'm going to hand it back to him and I'm going to forgive him. And, and it's like, you did this and it felt like this, there was lies attached to it. There was things I believed about myself handed all that to my biological father. And then I handed my biological father to Jesus and released him and said, Jesus, I, I choose, I choose to forgive him and I choose to hand him to you. So I no longer have to carry him. And then Jesus takes him and then he restores me. Mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a process in which it's not like, well, you just need to forgive. Right. It's a beautiful gift that we get. And if anybody ever uses it as a manipulative tactic, that's not forgiveness. That's control. Mm. Well, think about what she just described in terms of the assignment of responsibility in that forgiveness of in that forgiveness process. She described, she's giving responsibility back her biological father, Mm -hmm. which is something she had carried all the way up until then. She's actually reversing the abuse dynamic in that moment. The other thing we teach about forgiveness is that forgiveness is for past events. Mm -hmm. Yes. But if abuse is ongoing, and that's where you have to understand abuse isn't just about the behavior. It's about the misassignment of responsibility. So someone can stop the abusive behavior, but still blame the other person. And so it's still ongoing. In the case of ongoing patterns, what you have to do is set boundaries and maintain them. Mm -hmm. And so forgiveness is applied to something that has been in the past and has stopped. 
but something that's present and ongoing, what you need is boundaries. And Can you talk a little bit about what those boundaries look like in terms of an abusive marriage or an abusive relationship? You have to get in mind pretty clearly the idea that, that you know, what am I responsible for and what are they responsible for? Mm-hmm. Because it can get really murky when it's been a decade or more of that misassignment of responsibility. Yeah. But essentially what you're saying is, if this continues, here's how I'm going to respond. Mm-hmm. In other words, setting a boundary isn't about trying to control the other person. It's about declaring what you'll do if change doesn't happen. Mm-hmm. So it can be something like, hey, if you continue to raise your voice at me, I'm going to leave the room. Uh, If you continue to hold me responsible for X, Y, or Z, I'm going to move into another bedroom. Mm. Uh, And so essentially what you're saying is, you know, you want to come up with what are the the issues, the the either behaviors or verbal exchanges that you want to see change. You ask for change. And if it doesn't happen, you now come back and say, if that change doesn't happen, this is the change that I'm going to make. Mm You, you know, we talked a couple minutes ago about divorce. Ideally, that's not the first step. Exactly. But there's a progression. We're working our way backwards. Yeah. Sometimes yeah. we have to know that that's an option, though. Oh, absolutely. And yeah. I think if you don't know it's an option, you're absolutely powerless. Exactly. You no, know, the person has no motivation to change mm-hmm. if they think that the other person won't ever leave. On either, on either side. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. And so those boundaries simply look like saying, here's the change that I'm asking for. And if that change doesn't happen, here's the change I'm going to make. And that means that I can still be responsible for me, but I'm no longer going to tolerate the things that have been happening. Mm -hmm. Name them as clearly and behaviorally as possible. But some of them aren't just behavioral. Some of them are about about responsibility. Mm -hmm. So as long as you think it's up to me to make you happy, I'm going to have to create some distance between the two of us. Mm As long as you think it's up to me to stop your your pornography use, I'm going to have to let you know that I'm not going to be in a sexual relationship with you until you get some of that stuff straightened out. And so it's always about declaring what you'll do Mm -hmm. if the other person doesn't meet you in the middle. This keeps coming up in my mind, and I I think I know it's all tied together, but there's there's the recovery from pornography, there's the exposure, there's the the wanting to quit. You know, I'm in a uh, a group all that kind of stuff. And, but sometimes those groups ask that the wife be a, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? What oh, is accountability. accountability partner? No, <laughs> your wife, no, no. And or, no, or your husband, because I know women are addicted to porn too, but yeah. it's usually more so the other way right now. The wife is not your accountability partner. You should never ask her, nor a group should ever suggest that. Just think again about the issue of responsibility. Exactly. Right. Once again, the husband's saying, hey, I'm trying to quit this. Will you hold me accountable? Mm -hmm. Wait a minute. You know, I've been responsible all this time. Now you're asking me to be just responsible in another way. And I'm no longer going to have a conversation about pornography and the addiction unless it's in the context of a counselor, you know, just kind of having a this is what this needs to look like because I do not feel safe having this conversation, whether it's pornography or whatever, a very important time to invite a third party in. However, I would be, if you're (laughs) looking for a counselor, please make sure they are trauma informed and they understand the dynamics of abuse and ask them questions. What, how, how do they view divorce? How do they view abuse? And what is, just ask some questions like that. You can interview your counselor. 
and what? to them. They are working for you. I work for my clients. They yes. are working for you. I love it when my clients come in and say, this is what I want. Can you do this for me? Can yeah. we do this? What is, what is your history? What is your background? What do you believe? And schedule that 15 minute consultation call. And if a counselor will not do that with you, then that is not your counselor. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Keep in mind, trauma informed is not the same thing as abuse informed. Mm-hmm. Yep. The, the abuse dynamic that we've talked about today is I've been teaching it for four or five years and I still sometimes send my couples out for testing because I, I still look and go, which one of you is being abusive? I think, I think you may just be chaotically enmeshed, <laughs> Yeah, uh, but yeah. where do you send but, them for testing at? Oh, I send them to a, a place here locally where I get uh, a guy that we work with to do the MCMI. Okay. The Milan Clinical Multi-Axial Inventory. It's a, <laughs> you know it. It's a personality inventory. but I, And it helps me to go, okay, if, if the dynamic can look the opposite in front of you, and they're really good at it, I've been doing this for a long time, and I, I can still get fooled. Mm-hmm. My point in saying that, then, is to say you don't fix that by getting the other person to be responsible. That's right. You know, you you ask them to go, okay, then you're responsible for taking care of you. I've had some people ask their counselor to watch my video. Mm-hmm. And I just think if you, if you have been fooled by it before, and I was, I, I tell people that for the first half of my counseling practice, I think I had some people go back into abusive relationships because I didn't know. Yeah. I was fooled. I was fooled in my own relationship and I was certainly fooled in my practice for the first 15, 20 years of my practice. Yeah. Once I could see, I could see, but even at that, I still, like I said, send some people off for testing, but have mm-hmm. them watch the video. Mm-hmm. And now it's an hour long. And some, sometimes some counselors have said, you know, I need to be paid for that. That might be a legitimate way to, you know, yeah. but I, I think, I think a good counselor might actually watch it for their own education's sake. Yeah. <laughs> but I also understand if, if they're doing it for a client, they might, they might be billing for it. Mm-hmm. Maybe. <laughs> I want to go back to the idea of boundaries. Do you feel like the boundaries book is still a good resource for people? It's boundaries is um, such a broad and important topic that I think, you know, the Cloud and Townsend book on boundaries is just a, a classic and it's a great starting point for anyone who's going, where, where does the line, where's the line between his yard and my yard? You know, where, where's the line between yeah. his responsibility and my responsibility? Mm-hmm. And so it's a great starting point. And I'm trying to think other resources, all of the cloud and Townsend stuff is helpful. In I, that think, area. I think, I uh, think starting with safe people is mm-hmm. because it's such a small book. Mm-hmm. Um, it kind of gives just some snippets of what a safe person actually is. Mm-hmm. And then reading it's by cloud and Townsend also, yeah. and then reading their boundaries book, because it, I think they wrote the safe people after mm-hmm. boundaries because they're like, oh, wait, we're getting so many questions about what is really a safe person. Mm-hmm. And so if you've been raised in a, you know, a family system where you don't know what a safe person is, then it's like, I have no context for it. So I think, you know, reading that first and then going into boundaries is helpful. And then I send people to read uh, Beyond Boundaries, yeah. which I think is just Townsend, I, th- I think. And uh, his is the Beyond Boundaries is when is it safe to go back to a relationship mm. that you've gotten out of because of issues? Super black and white, super clear, you know, just like a lot of their stuff is always so black and white. Yeah. So it just gives a what what are the things to look for to know if it's safe to go back into a relationship that you've left because it was harmful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this has been so good. The idea of boundaries and remember boundaries are, they always benefit both, both sides. Yeah. Yes. And it can feel very selfish to communicate a boundary, but actually you're helping not only yourself, but your spouse, your community, 
the body. And so it's not just, it's not just for me, but whenever I'm healthy, I'm passing on that healthiness and that opportunity for health for someone else. And forgiving isn't the same as forgetting. And sometimes a relationship does need to end. It's hard. It's painful, but it is what's best. And so I'm going to include all of those resources in the show notes. Thank you guys. I, I feel like you guys are a treasure trove of information, freedom, help. And so thank you for all you guys do and who you are. Oh, well, thanks. It was so thank fun to be with you, you today. Yeah, thanks for having us. I hope you were, like I said, challenged, but also encouraged through that. And that this episode that maybe one that you save and share with a friend, it may be one that you save and go back to later. I feel like it is so deep and nuanced that it's something that we all need to hear and to learn more about. Thank you so much for joining me this week on Thrive, Mental Health and the Art of Living Free. Be sure to visit my website where you can subscribe to get the show notes and be sure to subscribe on Apple, Stitcher, wherever it is that you get your podcasts. That way you never miss a show. And while you're at it, help me out by adding some stars to the rating and tell a friend about the show. See you next week.